man in Yamate on Monday. The case will be mentioned at Cowan City Magistrates Court later today. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to a brand new month, Thursday the 1st of September. Money Talk is here on Radio 3, as always, every weekday morning. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. The latest official purchasing managers index data from the mainland showed China's manufacturing industry contracted for the second straight month in August as COVID-related lockdowns, a once-in-a-century heatwave and drought, and the crisis hit property sector weighed on production. Reuters is reporting that U.S. regulators have selected e-commerce majors Alibaba and JD.com, along with Yum China, among U.S.-listed Chinese companies for audit inspections starting this month. They've been notified that they're among the first batch of Chinese companies whose audits will be inspected in Hong Kong by U.S. audits. Watchdog, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. India's economy grew 13.5% in the second quarter, rebounding sharply from the 4.1% pace seen in the first quarter. That's the quickest rate since the 20.1% growth in the same quarter last year. And inflation in the Eurozone hit a record 9.1% in the year to August. The flash estimate of consumer price growth was up from 8.9% in July, which was itself the highest level in the 23-year history of the Euro. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global. Discussing the development of the fintech sector in Hong Kong is Ben Quinlan from Quinlan and Associates. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US and European stocks slid for a fourth consecutive day on Wednesday, ending the month of August at their lows as officials from both the Fed and the ECB continue to talk of aggressive action to tame soaring inflation. The S&P 500 fell 0.8% to 3,955 and has dropped almost 6% since Jerome Powell's hawkish speech at the Jackson Hole Symposium last Friday. For the month of August, the S&P 500 lost 4.2%. The Dow closed 280 points, or 0.9% lower, at 31,510, and bringing its monthly losses to 4.1%. The Nasdaq closed 0.6% lower on the day, and 4.6% lower over the month. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index fell 1.1% yesterday and 5.3% for the month. London's FTSE 100 dropped 1.9% in August. Hong Kong stocks tumbled at the open of trade on Wednesday, but regained all of their losses by the close. The Hang Seng Index closed 5 points, five points higher at 19,954. The index was down as much as 2% earlier in the session. For the month of August, the Hang Seng lost 1%. The tech index climbed 1.1%, rebounding from losses of 2.5% earlier in the day, and it's down 1.3% for the month. The Shanghai Composite fell 0.8% to 3,202, extending its losses for the month of August to 1.6%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 3% lower on the day and was down 14% for the month at $94.49 a barrel. 
Futures linked to the European Wholesale Gas Contract, TTF, have risen nearly 40% in August, pushing the two-month gain to 70%, and it's seven times the price now from a year ago. Copper is down just over 2% on the month. Gold is 3% lower in August at $1,708 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year Treasury bond started the month of August at 2.6% and ended it at 3.2%. And the US dollar rallied for the third straight month in August. The US dollar index climbed 2.7% over the month. The euro dropped below parity at one stage in August. It's currently at uh, $1.50. The Japanese yen fell 4.4% in August and it's at 139.41 right now. Sterling is the worst monthly performer among the major currencies, dropping 4.5% to $1.16 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 10 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan is close to a two-year low at 6.91 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin is down 15% in August at $20,000. Asia stock markets are all starting once again to the downside. The SX200 in Australia is sharply lower, down 1.4%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has fallen 1%. The Cosby in South Korea is off 1.25%. And futures markets pointing to a decline of around 250 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Time's coming up to 8.09. Let's welcome our regular Thursday commentator, personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning to you, Peter. And also with him over in the Queensway studio, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. Let's start with the uh, the PMI data from the mainland. Manufacturing contracted for the second straight month in August. Manufacturing PMI rose to 49.4 in August from 49 for the previous month, indicating that the contraction was slowing. And that was above economist forecasts for a reading of 49.2. The non-manufacturing PMI, that fell to 52.6 from 53.8 in July. But the reading has remained above the 50 level that separates expansion from contraction. And that also beat economists' forecasts. And the composite PMI fell to 51.7 from 52 and a half the previous month. Um, Enzio, what do you make from this? It seems that not much improvement really in activity in the mainland economy in August. No, but it really reflects heat and housing in China. Heat, of course, we all know kind of what's going on there. Just to put it in a nutshell, the the southwestern provinces are drying up, and so they don't really have any more water for the um, hydro energy, and that, of course, then feeds straight through into less manufacturing. So off we go with worse manufacturing indices, and that's going to continue for some time. That's indeed why China's economic time is characterized by an excess demand for money, but an excess supply of goods. And that's, of course, why they launched that $44 billion stimulus package and have also cut the rates just a smidgen. But again, all of this is overshadowed by their adamancy to uh, adamancy to continue fighting COVID. And I'm, mm. I'm afraid until that stops, this, this story is going to last for quite some time, this slowing, this worsting economic time in my diction. Even if um, this drought and heat wave ends as we move into the autumn, do you think the effects of that, the impacts of that are going to be longer lasting? 
the impacts of, of the uh, – yes, I mean, the, 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 there will be spillover effects because you don't just sort of turn a, a, a dam – you know, even mm. I know a, a dam doesn't just sort of fill up with water. So um, quite, that's going to last a long time. But I'm afraid the, the more pernicious effects will really be from this continuation of the COVID policy, mm. which is fine and good, but it's just going to – it's just going to – it's like, like trying to drive a car with a handbrake on. According to Nomura, there's 28 Chinese cities at the moment under lockdown, accounting for 15.7% of China's GDP. And a housing crisis worth one-third of China's GDP, so we're coming up to half GDPs under threat. Mm. Andrew, what, what are your thoughts? Where are we with the economy? Are you seeing any signs of recovery at all? Or do you agree with Enzio that it's um, not really much sign of improvement last month? Well, I think it's definitely true that you know, a lot of the manufacturing is under pressure. You've also got you know, slowing global demand as well impacting them. I mean, we have seen good export numbers recently, but a lot of that is pent-up demand from previous COVID lockdowns. So, uh, yes, I think it's, it's quite dire. And I think, you know, more importantly, looking forward, you know, we're just about to get 11 million graduates coming out of school and university to hit the, uh, hit the market there. Uh, and obviously with the clampdown on the e-commerce and the tutoring services, you know, it's also going to have a rising unemployment problem. This is, um, I was going to ask you about that because youth unemployment is almost 20%, a record high. One in five of um, Chinese people aged between 16 to 24 are unemployed. I mean, it's not discussed very much, but that must be a big, big problem. Well, I think it is. And I think, you know, you also look back that uh, I believe that something like 20% of the graduates from university used to go into the tutorial or e-learning e system. Mm. Uh, and obviously, after Xi's clamped down on that in trying to uh, relieve pressure on children, uh, all those jobs have gone, um, but without China providing any alternatives. But stimulus is coming. The central government's offered another stimulus package worth about 300 billion yuan. Is that going to do enough? Well, I think the problem is that, you know, stimulating economies and, and, and putting, throwing money at the problem doesn't really solve it. Um, mm. we, you know, the, the original you know, plan of the dual economy was to stimulate, you know, domestic consumption. But then if you pull away, you know, the housing market, then people aren't going to be buying you know, TVs and refrigerators and microwaves uh, because they're not sure they're going to get the flats to put them in. Enzio, mm. I, I want to pick up on something you mentioned about um, China's economic time, excess demand for money. I was under the impression that actually uh, the Chinese economy, the Chinese banking system was rather flash with cash. If you look at things like M2, it seems to be holding up pretty well and, and banks have got a lot of money. The problem is people just don't want to borrow it at the moment, neither consumers or businesses. Am, am I wrong in thinking? No, thinking no, no, that? you're not wrong at all. There's no right or wrong in this. It's, there's shades of grey. What I would, would just suggest is that the banks are also quite unwilling to lend because mm. they're very scared. And then, of course, you've got this whole housing mess with the lending going on there. And then, of course, then let's get into the shadow banking system, where it's probably even hairier. So um, this economic clock is just meant to give a, a very fuzzy guide. Um, I'm more concerned about the excess supply of goods, frankly, and that's why they have put in the stimulus package that Andrew was referring to. I don't think that roads and bridges are going to make Juan Paul Kettle out in Sichuan province decide that they want to go and do more shopping. This stimulus seems to be mainly focused on infrastructure, doesn't it? Always. It doesn't seem to really do anything for boosting consumer spending. 
I think the other problem is that though the banks, you know, as Enzio says, the banks are very conservative in how they lend. You know, they prefer to lend to state-owned enterprises because they know that's government-backed. Uh, when uh, when Xi told them to lend to the SMEs, effectively all they did was they went to those state-owned enterprises and asked them which SMEs supplied the state-owned enterprises. So they didn't really give it to the, the growing economy, the economy that needed money, the economy that's growing jobs. They mm. kept it very well in inside the state thing because they don't want non-performing loans. And I think it's very interesting that we, we've seen the, the bank results over the last couple of days. For the first time, we're seeing non-performing loans actually rise. We're seeing mm. the, the impact of this mortgage boycott and the worry about lending to property really starting to come home, and that's going to be a big problem. The reality is, isn't it, that this is a self-inflicted blow. It's China's, it's the government's own policies here that are whacking growth. It's the zero COVID policy, uh, the, the three, three red, red lines in the Absolutely. property sector, the clampdown on internet firms. None of this is creating jobs or creating jo um, growth. So it's all very well to talk about common prosperity, but it seems to be everyone's getting poorer together at the moment. Is, is this the problem? But I think the, the, the problem is that Xi very clearly knows that he needs to get money out of property, which is just like a, a sponge as far as soaking up cash is concerned. He very much wants it to get into you know, high tech uh, and wants to be relieved of constraints of uh, US clampdown and uh, restrictions there. But he's just tried to do it too quickly. I mean, mm. you know, if we look at what they've done in Belt and Road over 10 years, they did dramatic you know, really, really dramatic things in 10 years. But now, 10 years later, we're starting to see the problems that these, a lot of these you know, projects were ill-conceived and, and poorly funded uh, and weren't able to give back the returns that there were because there were, was no real research into the returns that they were going to generate in the first place. Mm. Isn't the problem, though, that the Chinese government in some ways is just too interventionist? It keeps see, having unforeseen consequences of it intervening in the economy, meddling in the markets. I mean, take the one-child policy. We're now paying the price of that, aren't we? We're, the the economy is falling off a demographic cliff now. Well, I think the, 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 the lesson from the one-child policy that, that's possibly transmutable to COVID is it only took them 38 years to decide to reverse it. And that didn't work either. Because <laughs> mm, uh, actually uh, population growth is declining. It's going to decline this year, isn't it? It's, again, just trying to drive a car with a handbrake on, and I just don't think that works. I'm, I'm too much of a von Hayek acolyte to, to know that <laughs> you just can't be smarter than the markets. Now, Reuters is reporting that U.S. regulators have selected some companies to be audited by their uh, public count accounting oversight board in Hong Kong. Uh, they include Alibaba, JD.com and Yum China, which is the owner of KFC, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut restaurants in China. Is this a big step forward? Uh, I'll take over. This is U.S. China. Um, I don't really think so at the end of the day. I mean, it sounds good. They already did this in 2013, but that all got, got a bit of mess. Didn't it? work out because the, um, when the U.S. officials went to China, they tried checking the audits of large tech groups that were stone, and they were stonewalled by regulators. This time around, what the problem is in this so-called Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act 2020, that's what you're referring to, is that the – and that was kicked off by the Luckin coffee scandal defrauding mm. NASDAQ people of only $300 million worth of coffee. So that's Which all the auditors didn't yes, discover. Yeah. No wonder they're all asleep. Um, so um, the, the markets are leery just because – 
they it's the proof is in the pudding um and the um it just seems as if the liability for the US auditors to Chinese companies will also be a crucial detail to define over the coming months in other words how how compliant and how liable are these US auditors and then of course also whether these the Chinese bureaucracy is really going to take take the bull by the horns and, and, and make one person in the Chinese vast bureaucracy accountable for the implementation of all this stuff. It's fine and good saying we've got all this, we're going to do all this, and then mm. saying, well, actually, Peter's going to tell Paul, Paul's going to tell Bill, and Bill's going to tell Enzio what to do, and then, of course, nobody comes to a decision. Andrew, I mean, heaven forbid, what happens if uh, the U.S. Uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board finds a problem mm. with the audits of one of these big companies? Well, that's obviously going to be a problem. And, but I think, I mean, it, it, it's really, as Enzio was saying, it's very much a matter that it's going to be in the detail. We've had a, a plan like this before which didn't work. Um, it can always be slowed down by bureaucracy. Um, and I think, you know, realistically, it, it, it's an awkward time for China because with the slowing economy, it really does need foreign money to come in uh, and, and support it. Uh, and everything we're seeing at the moment, and especially looking at the property sector and the bondholders for Evergrande and for other companies there that are uh, just not seeing any movement by the, the companies or the government to help them. Mm. And also, just adding to that, um, to slip it in, that it's only when the Chinese auditor is handing over a lot of information to this public accounting board that that we will know just whether the Chinese have decided whether the data that they're handing over is are sensitive or not. And that's the whole moot point. I mean, is this stuff sensitive? Can we allow it to be audited? Uh, can we not allow it to be audited? Audited because of sensitivity? And that's a normative judgment. That's not a. That's mm. not an empirical judgment. Okay, we move into September. So let me ask you to give your thoughts on the markets uh, for, for August. It was really a month of two halves, wasn't it? Certainly for US equities. Started well, continued July's gains, and then it all went pear sh Bonds and stocks all dumped in the second half. What do you, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, it's very much a matter of uh, the Fed and its attitude to uh, inflation and uh, and the raising of rates. I mean, I think the encouraging thing for investors must be the fact that now money is starting to be priced correctly. When interest rates are at zero, then there's no risk in cash. As interest rates rise, then money hopefully will go to those good companies that are going to give good returns, that have brand power, that have pricing power, uh, and that are going to give returns to investors, as mm. opposed to just throwing money at the complete market. But I think that the Jackson Hole... Confab was about as exciting as watering plastic plants, frankly, because the um, there was really no conclusion reached except the usual blatherings about, yes, well, we will stay firm on our inflation targets. That's, of course, fine and good until you get a global recession because of the European recession coming off the gas, off the winter with the Russian gas crisis and the U.S. economy beginning to falter yet again. So um, I'm afraid that this it's, it's, it's just it's, it's directionless. It doesn't have the vision of a Volcker or indeed of a Greenspan, erroneous as he perhaps was. Mm. Well, the, the idea was um, originally, when you go back to sort of the 70s and Volcker, um, was to, to get control of inflation to stop the economy falling into recession. It seems now the idea is to put the economy into recession to stop inflation. Yeah, but it's again based on this idea that it's all demand pull inflation and I keep on rattling back and saying but a lot of this is cost push the high oil price the high gas price the weather the food prices I know that some of them are tumbling but don't tell me that uh, droughts going to ex exactly depress food prices all along that doesn't work
I think the thing at the end of the day for investors is, is really looking at, you know, what is the company providing? Is it, is it really providing a service than, that people are prepared, prepared to pay for? And does it have enough brand power and necessity that people, as costs rise, are, continue, are, are prepared to continue buying its products? Uh, and that's going to be the key driver. Markets have lost about half their gains now since uh, the, the June low. Do you think that's going to continue? Are they going to give them all up? I don't think they'll give them all up. I think, you know, companies that, as I go back to, companies that are providing non-necessities, that likeable things, as people, you know, have to pull in their, 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 their belts and uh, make uh, cost-cutting personal, uh, those companies are likely to suffer, and that's what we've already seen in the market. You know, the, the stability kind of things, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the food stocks, those with good brand powers, those will continue to, to see support. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed. You heard there Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global and Personal Wealth Advisor in Zero Von File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On 8.23, on the phone now is Ben Quinlan, CEO and Managing Partner of Quinlan & Associates. Morning, Ben. Good morning, Peter. Now, you've just done um, a report, a lengthy report, along with Google, I believe, looking at uh, the fintech sector in Hong Kong. This is a sector that the government in recent years have spent a lot of money on trying to promote. So what have you found? What is the state of the fintech sector here in Hong Kong after all that money? <laughs> well, I mean, look, financial services as a whole is Hong Kong's leading sector in terms of economic contribution and one of the largest uh, in terms of employment contribution too. So fintech naturally has an important role to play given all the digital transformation that's happening across the FS industry. We've seen consumer adoption rates at about 67% now, uh, incumbent banks about 86% adopting And this particular study, we wanted to really go in and and speak with 126, actually, fintech founders and CEOs Mm. in the city to understand their perspectives with respect to uh, their internal business priorities, what the talent landscape was, what they thought of the funding landscape. The overall view is uh, it's a challenging environment. There's a lot of opportunities, but depending on whether you're a late stage or early stage fintech, those challenges vary across your you know, your internal considerations as well as your external. But at the end of it, the most important critical thing for every fintech is really achieving product market fit. And in order to really get to that end goal, one of the key skill sets they're really looking for is sales talent of, of all things top top of mind for literally most fintechs out there. So there's a lot to unpack um, mm. and have to, you know, unpack each part in a bit more detail. Well, let's talk about that talent issue then, because that's been in focus a lot um, recently. Singapore has announced some measures to try and um, attract talent to, uh, to its city and even mm-hmm. poach talent away from Hong Kong. The problem here we have in Hong Kong, as we know, is we have a brain drain, don't we? Population is declining yeah. quite rapidly. Um, so how serious is the problem for fintech firms in finding talent in Hong Kong or attracting people from outside to come to Hong Kong? Uh, it's pretty severe. I mean, if we, if we take just the survey results from the study itself, the majority of fintechs are facing a talent gap or a talent crunch here. 
Um, but the key issues are really lack of talent and suitability, talent availability, as well as now the pressures around remuneration because, you know, the fintechs are fighting with the incumbent institutions with very deep pockets who are also looking for the same set of talent as they digitalize as well. So how much does, you know, the geographical attractiveness factor in? It's, it's always going to be a problem and you can see a lot of other jurisdictions obviously getting much more aggressive on positioning their fintech hubs to compete with markets like Hong Kong and a lot mm. of fintechs especially from Hong Kong have moved to markets like uh, Dubai uh, like Singapore in the past one to two years it's actually been uh, quite an, uh, an outflow. So what would they like uh, the government to do to make Hong Kong more attractive and to make it easier for them to bring talent to Hong Kong? Well, I think overall, like, there's, there's a couple of key elements. So first and foremost, it's really around this access to talent networks, right? Marketplaces for employees and employers to really connect with each other uh, much more. And, you know, you're not talking about generic marketplaces or generic job search sites. FinTech skill sets are obviously very specific and can be very specific depending on what uh, jobs people are after. Wage subsidies, grants, always very important for, for startups, uh, particularly in the current funding environment where, you know, VC belts have tightened. And as a result of that, you know, runways are very limited. And each and every dollar that's spent on headcount really makes a difference to fintechs in terms of their growth journey. So anything, uh, particularly for early stage companies around wage subsidies and grants, and then broader mentorship, talent search service opportunities. I think at the end of it, it's just the funding situation and the ability to connect uh, the right talent with the right people is obviously very important. All the other things like your corporate training, educational scholarships, professional certificates, where the government can help out, that's fine. But I wouldn't say that's top, top priority for the fintechs. What about funding? Do fintechs here in Hong Kong find it easy to uh, attract funding? Not really. Um, about 57% of the fintechs that we surveyed said they found it a challenge to access suitable investors. And then, you know, the next biggest problem was really uh, negotiating with those investors. In my view, I mean, the, the VC ecosystem in Hong Kong isn't that mature. There aren't that many, to be honest, if you compare it to a market like the United States or, 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 or the UK. But I think as a result of that, there's a limited pool of very specialized people that really get the fintech industry. And what many fintechs find themselves doing is educating the VC so much. And often after even the initial round or, you know, a backing from a local VC, they tend to get a lot of their funding offshore. So the Hong Kong VCs aren't really front and center of many of these funding rounds, particularly as the ticket sizes get considerably larger. So it is a problem. Um, and I would like to see the VC ecosystem mature a lot more in Hong Kong in coming years. And, and briefly, what, what about the regulatory landscape here? We hear a lot of talk about set regulatory sandboxes to test new ideas. What, how do we compare to other jurisdictions? Yeah, I generally think that uh, the sandboxes are very good. I think we've got, you know, the POC subsidy schemes, which are always well received. So, you know, if a fintech wants to go and launch their product, a B2B fintech, let's say with a bank or an asset manager, they will get the backing and funding to do that. The main thing, however, though, is the big challenge in Hong Kong, 
vendor onboarding for B2B fintechs takes a long, long, long time. We always see a massive opportunity for the government to create pre-approved lists of you know, fintechs from a data, compliance, whatever perspective, common standards across the industry with a regulatory sign-off that says, these are all the fintechs that you can work with. Don't run them through six to nine months of vendor onboarding and processes because mm. it burns their cash and it creates a lot of pain for them. Ben, thank you very much indeed for updating us on that. That's Ben Quinlan, the CEO and Managing Partner of Quinlan and Associates. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian markets are falling pretty hard now, um, not long after the open. The ASX 200 in Australia... Uh, down 1.9%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off one and a quarter percent. The Cosby is down one and a half percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 250 points for the Hang Seng at the open. Coming up after the news is back chat with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast, sunny periods, few showers and thunderstorms. Uh, maximum temperature of about 32 degrees. It is 29 degrees right now. 77% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. A chief manager at the hospital authority says the working relationship between public and private hospitals has improved when it comes to COVID patient admissions. Dr. Lau Ka-Hin made the comment as Hong Kong's daily COVID tally headed toward 10,000, with the Center for Health Protection reporting 9,495 new cases, 228 of them imported. At this moment, we have at least 380 beds that we can download or discharge our patients to these private hospitals. We will continue to liaise with the private hospitals to increase the number of beds when the COVID admission is increased. Our communication, our working relationship with the private hospitals are much better now. So the turnover, the number who are admitted to the private hospital is increasing in, in the past one or two weeks. Almost 2,600 people with COVID are now being treated in public hospitals, 15 of them in intensive care. Nine more COVID-related patients have died. Sports Commissioner Yong Tap Kung says there are currently no plans to require spectators going to the Hong Kong Sevens this November to get tested before entering the stadium. But players will have to be tested daily. The commissioner says there will be a closed-loop arrangement for those taking part in the event. First of all, all the overseas players and officials, they will stay in a quarantine hotel. They will under a bubble arrangement. So um, according to, to the current requirements, they will stay in, the, uh, in a quarantine hotel for three days. And during those three days, well, subject to a negative uh, test result, they can conduct training in the designated venues with special transport arrangements. The police have laid a holding charge against three men aged 27 to 39 jointly with one count of murder. The three were arrested on Monday and Tuesday following the death of a 35-year-old man in Yamate on Monday. The case will be mentioned at Kowloon City Court later today. Russian media say the funeral of the Soviet Union's last leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, will take place on Saturday. He died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Russian news agency says the ceremony will be held at Moscow's Hall of Columns and will be open to the public. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Mr. Gorbachev had changed the course of history for the whole of Europe. We know that he's died at a time when not only has democracy in Russia failed, but also Russia and the Russian president Putin are digging new trenches in Europe and have started a terrible war against the neighboring country, Ukraine. And that is precisely why we remember Mikhail Gorbachev and know what significance he had for the development of Europe and also of our country in recent years. 
The world's largest offshore wind farm off the east coast of England has become fully operational. The Hornsey 2 project can generate enough electricity to power more than a million homes. Dozens of huge turbines 200 meters high will generate electricity in the North Sea. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. Today we're looking at how hotel operators are doing after quarantine here was cut by half around two weeks ago to three nights. Some hotels say the change has significantly reduced their business and some don't even want to be a designated quarantine hotel anymore. 